morning, church. Our scripture reading for this morning is found in the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verse 6 to 8. 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verse 6 to 8. So again, that's 2 Timothy, chapter 4. Starting from verse 6. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for this appearance. Well, the reason we've been able to be here a number of times is that your church has hosted our association meetings, and I'm very grateful for that, for your hospitality that we've experienced so many times, and also the privilege to be here as we celebrate the Lord's table this morning, as we remember his death, his sacrifice for us, as we worship him, praise him, and thank him. Have you ever experienced discouragement in your life? I have. I can't count the number of times. And I'm sure that you have as well. I wonder if you find it a surprise that many Christian leaders have experienced a deep discouragement in their life and they continue to minister in the midst of that discouragement. Martin Luther, for instance. I need to mention Martin Luther because we're coming up to the 500th anniversary of the Reformation on October 31st. That's the importance of October 31st. So 500 years ago, Martin Luther nailed his 99 Thesis to the door, which is a normal thing to do at that time, and God used that to stir people and start a Reformation. His focus was very much on the Bible. So Martin Luther, just thinking he was a good Catholic, looking at the problems in the church, nailed his 99 Thesis up there, but God wanted to do something mighty in his church. Martin Luther was put into a tower for a number of years, a number of months, not a number of years. And when he was in that tower, for his safety, he was a prisoner for his own safety. When he was in that tower, he translated the New Testament into German. First time. It had always been in Latin. Do you understand Latin? No. Neither do I. He translated it into a language that the people could understand because Martin Luther was German. And while he was in that tower during those several months, he experienced times of great discouragement. In fact, one time during discouragement, he took the inkwell that he was using. He would dip his pen in or his quill, whatever he used, dip it in, and he would write his translation. And he took that inkwell and he threw it at the wall and he said, Satan, get away from me. Another time, the same Martin Luther was so discouraged because the gospel was not going forward among his, his neighbors, his Germanic peoples, not going forward the way he longed to see it go forward. People were caught in a religion, but they weren't in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He was so discouraged about that, for 18 months, he did not preach. A preacher that doesn't preach, those things don't go together. It's a great discouragement. There are many other leaders that have experienced this kind of discouragement. I could mention a few of them. C.S. Lewis suffered 
disappointment, discouragement, and depression, as did Charles Spurgeon, that great preacher of a hundred years ago. David Brainerd, missionaries as well. David Brainerd, Hudson Taylor, Adoniram Judson, also experienced times of great discouragement and even depression. Judson had been in Burma for 10 years as a missionary. In 10 years, he did not have one convert. His wife died. Other things happened, difficult things in his life. He became so discouraged, so depressed, that he went into the jungle and he built a hut. And behind that hut, he dug his grave. And every day, he would spend a few hours just gazing into that grave, contemplating his death. That man was depressed. Even Christian leaders can become like this, and any Christian can experience this kind of situation of discouragement and even depression. Well, I haven't been as discouraged as um, Judson was. In the passage I'm looking at today, Paul is writing to Timothy. Timothy has been mentored by the Apostle Paul. They've worked together in ministry, and now Paul is in prison for the final time. He had been in prison before, written some other letters, but now he knows the end has come. The Apostle Paul is in a situation as he writes this letter, pens this letter, his last letter, he pens this letter to Timothy. He's in a situation where at any moment he could hear the boots of the Roman soldiers coming down the hall to take him away to kill him. And he writes this letter to Timothy. He wants to encourage Timothy. He writes this passage to Timothy. He wants to encourage Timothy. He wants to encourage every one of us as we come to this passage, the Word of God. So the end has come for Paul. His faithfulness to God and the gospel, the vindication of his call to share the good news with the Gentiles and his reward in heaven, it's a model for us. It's an encouragement and it's a challenge for us as it was for Timothy. Well, the passage is filled with passion. The whole book is filled with passion. What would you write on your deathbed to someone who's really important to you? Well, this is what Paul is writing to Timothy. We're looking at just a small portion of it, 2 Timothy 4, 6-8. I invite you to turn to that passage again as we look at it this morning. 2 Timothy 4, 6-8. Well, Paul sees himself as a sacrifice for Jesus. Look at verse 6. Paul writes, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Paul sees himself as a sacrifice for Jesus. He uses the metaphor of a drink offering. This is something that comes from the Old Testament. It's a kind of sacrifice. Well, what is a drink offering? We find it, first of all, mentioned in Genesis 35:14. Jacob is running away from home. He stops. Remember, he has that vision of the angels going up and down the ladder. And at the end of that vision, the next morning when he wakes up, he anoints the stone that he's used as his pillow. And he pours out a drink offering. We read Genesis 35:14, And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. Well, we find the drink offering as we continue on in uh, the next few books of the Bible. Leviticus, for instance, says, Leviticus 23:13, And the green offering, and it shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma, and the drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hin. 
So we find that normally it's wine that's used as a drink offering, although in another place in Numbers it's referred to as a strong drink, which I suppose means a stronger drink than wine. Well, there are other mentions of the drink offering in the Old Testament, but I think you get the point. The drink offering was poured out on the sacrifice or poured beside the sacrifice. So I, I, I think you might get this in a province where my Quebecois friends tell me that wine is one of the food groups. <laughs> right? So you're taking this nice wine and you're just pouring it out. Just pouring it out. The most expensive you can find because it's a gift to God, right? And you're just pouring out, glug, 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 glug. Just pour it all out. You know what? We can think of that as a waste, but God sees it as a pleasing sacrifice being poured out. Well, that's the idea of the, the drink offering. Paul uses the metaphor in Philippians 2.17 uh, as he's looking at the possibility of his execution. Now, at this point in Philippians, he's in jail. He might be executed, but we know that he wasn't. And we expect that what happened was he was released from jail. We know that happened. And he went on another missionary journey. Maybe he actually made it to Spain. We don't know. He wanted to go from Rome to Spain. Maybe he actually made it to Spain. This is what he writes at that time, the first time he was in prison in Rome. Philippians 2.17, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. So in the Second Timothy passage, when he's saying this, it's a sure thing. He's just waiting to hear the march of those Romans coming down the hall to pick him up and take him away for execution. So Paul sees his whole life as being poured out for Jesus. His whole life as a sacrifice for Jesus, just poured out. Not just his end, he will soon be a martyr for Jesus, but his whole life is a sacrifice, a pouring out for Jesus. Paul is laying down his life for the gospel. He's a drink offering, just being poured out. And this metaphor seems to give a reason for his life. To be out. Well, the language of sacrifice is common for Paul. Then he links it with Christ's sacrifice, and we're going to remember Christ's sacrifice today here at the communion table. The language of sacrifice is common for Paul. For instance, Colossians 1.24, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. And, of course, Romans 12.1, which many of you know, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul is poured out for Jesus because Jesus is poured out for Paul. We can be poured out for Jesus because Jesus is poured out for us. Well, Paul talks about his departure and uh, it's, a, it's a euphemism that he's using for death. We do the same thing today. We talk about our departed loved ones. When Paul was writing, this is the term he uses, we have the same idea. He talks about his departure. He knows that death is coming very, very close. So this is meant to be an encouragement. How is this an encouragement to us? I want to tell you a personal story related to this passage. Now, sometimes people will say to me, 
uh, Pastor Brian, how long does it take to prepare a message? And that would depend on the message. But this message has been in process since September 1994. That's when God first put this passage on my heart and in my life. So where was I in September 1994? I was in Segula, Cote d'Ivoire, West Africa. We'd been there for three months. We arrived in July 1994, and this was September 1994. I can't tell you how deep the culture shock felt, but if you're new to this country, you know what it's like. For me, it was going to Africa. Anyone who has come to this country from your home country knows what the culture shock is like. You arrive in a new country, and everything's different. Maybe the people even speak a different language than what you spoke at home. Everything is different in terms of the expectations. We were missionaries. We didn't want to offend people, so we're constantly aware of trying to do the right thing so people wouldn't be offended. But the result is, in culture shock, it's like your, your legs are just knocked out from underneath you. You're starting all over again. You make decisions every day, and you have to think about those decisions. I mean, back home, you make those decisions automatically. You know what to do. You know what to say. They just come to you. But when you're in a new culture, you're thinking about it all the time. You don't want to offend the people who are becoming your friends, your brothers and sisters at church. And it's just a really, really difficult time. I cannot tell you how many times in the first three months I thought, I wish I could get out of here. We were up country. We were seven hours bus ride up country. And I will tell you, God used that horrendous bus ride to help keep us in Segula. Because the effort of packing up and trying to get back on that bus and get back to the main city to get the airport would be very great. But in September 1944, 19, sorry, 1994, I'm not that old. So in September 1994, God did something really special in my life. Now, we lived in a church, or in a, a might as well have been the church, in a, a building, a house right beside the church. So in Africa, everything is loud. Lots of drums. We have a drum up here today. Lots of djembies. Lots. And whenever something happened in the church, it was like it was right in our living room. Now, we worked with the French church, but there was a Jula church that uh, met as well. And I think they were louder than the people that met in, met in French. So every time that happened, there would be noise in our living room. But that wasn't the only noise. Like Africa's noisy. And this was part of our culture shock as well. In Canada, especially this time of year, you know, we close the windows, we close the doors, and everything's pretty quiet. But Africa is very noisy. There is a bug that apparently, it's a beetle, it's, it apparently starts at the bottom of a tree and goes to the top, and it makes this terrible grating noise all the way up to the top. And I wonder if it ever would get to the top. I don't think it ever got to the top. And roosters would crow all night. Who said roosters crow first thing in the morning? You know what? Oh, you know. Okay. And then dogs, like the drums would go, go into the night till about 1 o'clock. And drums were not just used for worship and praise, but drums were uh, used at the, um, uh, the local bar and dance hall and stuff like that. It's, it's an instrument of Africa. The drums would go to about 1 o'clock in the morning. And then at 1.30, a dog would start to howl. We're in a small town of 10,000 people. But I tell you, there are a lot of dogs in a small town of 10,000 people. One dog would start to howl, and then another one would start. And soon, all the dogs all over town, they're just making this terrible racket. We've been there for a little while, and we thought, 
It's the hounds of hell. (laughs) Come to discourage these missionaries and send them home. You know what's amazing is that when we got into our second year, things just became normal. And we just didn't feel that same sort of pressure. But in September 1994, the Muslim outreach team, and we were, we were working with the local church, so we weren't part of the Muslim outreach team, but they were having a special missions conference in that church right next to us. And they had a speaker come. And uh, one of the members said to me, I know you're not on the Muslim outreach team, but, you know, if you want to come over just to hear this fellow speak, then uh, you can do that. So on Saturday afternoon, I went over and I heard one message. And the message was on this passage. Now, I cannot remember any details of what the man said. It was a man from Nigeria speaking in French. I can't remember any details. But as he spoke, the Lord said to me, Brian, are you willing to be poured out for me? Brian, are you willing to be poured out for me right where I've got you right now? Even if you never make it to that Bible college, which I didn't until we were there five years, even if you stay right here in Segula, in the middle of nowhere, are you willing to be poured out for me? And I said, yes, Lord. The rest of the year was still difficult because we were still getting used to things. But that was a major barrier that I went through. And what encouraged me was this passage. And the Lord saying, are you willing to be poured out for me? You see, that means meaning to my life. No matter where he puts me, if no one ever knows me, and my name never gets on the Internet, it's just to be willing to be poured out for Jesus and to say, yes, Lord. Wherever you've got me, yes, Lord. I'll be your person right here, right in this situation, right in this circumstance. Do you have difficult circumstances? You know, so many people do. Many of you do. I don't even know you, and I know that many of you are living in pain while you're sitting here listening to me. Are you willing to be poured out for Jesus? Just say, yes, Lord. I know you're with me in this. Lord, just use this somehow for your glory. Are you willing to be poured out for Jesus? Well, Paul was willing to be poured out for Jesus. But not only that, Paul gives a personal analysis, verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. This is Paul's personal analysis. He makes three statements here. And I want you to note that the verb is in the perfect tense. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Perfect tense. Completed. Done. Now, Paul is expecting to die any day. And this is how he reflects on his life. This is his personal analysis of his life. He says, I fought the good fight. It's an athletic metaphor, more than a military metaphor. And he calls it a good fight, meaning beautiful or noble. So Paul considers that life in Christ engaging in in this contest has been a noble contest. A contest of sharing the good news with people around him. A contest against the enemy who wants nobody to come to Jesus. See, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, well, Satan doesn't want you to know Jesus. But we're here to talk about Jesus this morning. Paul engaged in that contest. He calls it a noble contest. And he says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. It's another athletic uh, metaphor. We think of the stadium. We have stadiums here. It's the same idea. You have the bleachers. 
This is uh, what the Olympics were like. Uh, Paul's time, and people would run the race down there. You could see them. But he says, I've finished the race. And then he says, I've kept the faith. Now, this might have been a body of doctrine. Like, I mean, we know Paul had his doctrine right because we read about it in the Bible, right? He knew doctrine. He had his doctrine correct. He knew all the points. But more likely, this is not a body of doctrine, as important as that is. This is about his personal faith. He says, I have kept the faith to the last moment. That's what he's saying. He's ready to die. He knows he's going to die. But at that point, he's still saying, my faith is in Jesus. I love Jesus. I can't wait to be with Jesus. He's kept the faith, that personal faith in Jesus. Well, there's no uh, claim of personal glory here. Uh, Paul isn't saying, look how great I am. He's doing a personal analysis. And in fact, he couldn't come to this point. And we know this from his other writings. He could not come to this point if he didn't do this in the context of God's grace and God's love and by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way we can say I've run the race. I've, I've kept the faith. It's because of the Lord running the race with us. What is the race that God has asked you to run? You see, it's different for everyone. I'm not talking about the general things for all of us. I mean, there are some general things, loving your neighbor, hospitality, and we could name a lot of things that are general things that advance the kingdom of God, and we're all called to do that. But I think we each have a race to run. You see, you're not in my church, and I'm not in your church. Our race to run is different. You're not in my home, and I'm not in your home. Your race to run is different. The circumstances that I have in my life are not the circumstances you have in your life, but all of those circumstances are part of the race that we have to run in Jesus Christ. So what is the race that you are running? You know, I want you to know this. And Paul understood this. Whatever the race is that you're running, you're not alone. Jesus is running right there with you. It's not like... God says, okay, here's my will. There you go. Please go do it, and I'll see you at the end. Not at all. Jesus is right there with us, walking with us through whatever it is we are walking through. That's the race that we have to run. That's what God has given us. And, you know, for some of you, it might feel like you're just being poured out, and there's like, it's for nothing. You know, I think of the many people who come to our country who are highly trained we run an English class in our church. And in our English class, you know, we have um, lawyers, uh, physiotherapists, and various professionals. And what can they do here? At this point, they can't even get a job. And many of those professionals end up driving a taxi. But if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, and your life is poured out, poured out by him, I mean, it's a passive tense. Paul didn't pour his own life out. The Lord was pouring it out. So he's pouring you out wherever he has you. And that's just where you run your race. And Jesus runs the race with you. And that way you can come to this point where at the end of your life, you can say, I've, yeah, I've run the race. I've fought the good fight. I've kept the faith because Jesus has kept me. So we each have a race a race to run. And Paul says, run, 
Run your race in such a way as to win the prize. But Paul goes on, he talks about the reward, the crown of righteousness, which is another point of encouragement. Verse 8, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul's reward is the crown of righteousness. He says, henceforth, or now, which suggests, well, whatever, like, whatever is left, and for him, we're, we're counting days that's left in his life. But he says, it's laid up for me, or it's in store for me. It's held in reserve. It's like an inheritance that you know you're going to get and you haven't got yet. That's what the crown of righteousness is like, as Paul expresses it here. This inheritance that's coming, you know it's coming to you because it comes to you in Jesus. But it hasn't arrived yet. That's the idea, laid up in store for me, a crown of righteousness. Well, the crown would be something, it's a reference again, an athletic reference. It would be what the Olympic winner would win, that laurel of wreaths that he got on his head at the Olympics to say that he'd won. That's at the time of Paul. And so that's the idea of crown. The expression, crown of righteousness, is found only here in the scripture, although we find the expression, the crown of life, in James 1.12 and Revelation 2.10. And there the idea is eternal life. So the crown of righteousness, and one interpretation is that it's the crown that we get. It's always the crown we get at the end. But that crown is the total righteousness of Jesus, saturating all of who we are. You see, right now, when God looks at us, he sees, if we're in Christ, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. The scripture said that he is our righteousness. But we all know we fall short even as we follow Jesus. And you know what? It's not about perfection. It's about direction. It's never about perfection. But a day will come when that righteousness of Jesus permeates all of who we are, our very personality. Another way of looking at this is that it's a crown of victory as a result of walking in righteousness. Again, righteousness is not perfection. It's walking in the Jesus way and a crown of victory. But no matter which way you see it, It's the grace of God that gives it to us in the end. And so that's something that encourages us, that we have laid up for us, our inheritance, a crown of righteousness. As we walk through this life, especially as we walk through the valleys of this life, the difficult times, we remember that crown of righteousness. And Paul says, on that day, so the point is, hoping for Christ's return is an essential part of our perseverance. We're looking forward to Jesus to return. He said he will return. He will return. We don't know when he will return. He said this generation, which I believe means every generation throughout all of the ages, needs to live as if Jesus will return in our generation. He will return. That is an encouragement on that day. Well, Paul knows when he meets the master face to face that he will say to him, well done, good good and faithful servant. So we see here that uh, Paul sees himself as a sacrifice for Jesus, poured out for Jesus. Paul gives this personal analysis, perfect tense, and Paul sees the reward, it's forward to the reward, the crown of righteousness. But there's another point that I want to give to you, and it's not right in the passage. It's that Paul is passing the baton. It's what 2 Corinthians is all about. 
Paul has worked with Timothy. Paul is passing the baton to Timothy. He's telling Timothy, now it's your turn to take over. And he encourages him through this letter. Someone has said, the greatest test of your ministry is what happens when you move on. Well, it's true for pastors, yes. It's true for anyone who is in leadership in the church and any ministry that you have. Are you training someone up for your ministry? Now, you might move on because you move to a different church, a pastor moves to a different church, um, you relocate. You might move on just because you're moving from one ministry in the church to another ministry in the church. Are you ready to pass the baton? Are you ready to give it off to someone else? Well, this, Paul is saying, is implicitly is an encouragement. He's ready to pass the baton. Timothy is ready to take the baton and to continue running with it. In high school, I was part of um, track and field. And the relay race was part of track and field. You have four runners, and they run once around the track, and they have a baton, and they have to pass that baton to another person. Well, the first runner goes around the track, and he doesn't come up and say, hey, how would you like a baton? Are you kidding? He does that, and the other team has already won because they are long gone. There's a narrow window of time to pass that baton. So the first runner runs around, and he's still running, the second guy starts to run, and they have this, this short space where you can pass the baton to the next person. That person has to grab it and then start running with it. Are you ready to pass the baton? Are you willing to pass the baton? Too often in a church, we get into a ministry that we really like, and we get stuck in that ministry. And we haven't trained someone else up to take that ministry. But I really believe it's part of... Our Christian life is to be a mentor to someone else. And you know what? You don't have to be a pastor, elder, or, or leader to mentor someone else. You just need to be a few steps ahead of someone else. And you help them take a few more steps along the Jesus way. There was a pastor whose name was uh, Pastor Gallup. He came to our small church where I grew up. We had about 35 people on a Sunday morning. And he uh, was a tail gunner in World War II. And from there, he went to be a chaplain in the armed forces. He retired from the armed forces. And um, he came to our small church. And when he came to us, he said, I don't have any theological training. I don't have any Bible training, no official Bible training. But I'm happy to be your pastor. But we need to do this together. Hallelujah. May every pastor say that. We need to do this together. And so he put his finger on me and uh, just helped me to grow a ministry. He had me preaching my first sermon at age 14. You do not want to hear that sermon. <laughs> but he mentored me. And, and the challenge really is for each one of us to be mentoring another person. And then the whole body grows. I mean, some people have this position more than others. Admittedly, pastor, elders, etc. But the whole body grows as we all step in that together. And I'm sure that when Pastor Gallup arrived before the master, he also... Heard, well done, good and faithful servant. So what are your circumstances today? You know, friends, we can just, we can complain so easily, can't we? And you know, some of you, I'm sure some of you have really, really difficult situations. But the challenge is just to see yourself poured out for Jesus. But Jesus is there in the midst of that. It doesn't make it easy. It doesn't make it go away. But just he is there with you. As you're running your race, he is right there. 
That's an encouragement. I'm going to ask the elders to come forward and we'll uh, move into the communion. And while they're doing that, I just want to say a few more things. Paul could be poured out for Jesus because Jesus is poured out for him. You can be poured out for Jesus because Jesus was poured out for you. I can be poured out for Jesus because Jesus was poured out for me. We're celebrating the death of Jesus Christ here. Now, again, I don't know he's a congregation, but, I mean, it's possible that there's someone here that's saying, what is that guy talking about? Well, I'm talking about giving your life to Jesus. And you're still saying, what do you mean give my life to Jesus? I like my life just the way it is, thank you. But you know, that's what it takes. Jesus is in the business of giving new lives for old. We give our old life to Jesus and he gives us a new life. And you know what? When he gives us a new life, he writes the script and we don't. And you may not always like the script, but it's the best one for your life. So we're going to, as we take uh, part in the communion service here, as this is passed around, when you take this, what you are saying is, yes, Jesus, you are my Savior. My sins are forgiven in you. You are my Lord, and my life is poured out for you, whatever you want. My Jesus, my Savior, my Lord. And as you take this, you might even pray to Jesus. Thank you for forgiveness of sins. Yes, Lord, take my life. It's yours. Do whatever you want with it. Now, if you're not at that point this morning, and you haven't prayed a prayer like that, and you could do it right this morning as we're passing this around. But if you haven't prayed a prayer like that, you're not at that point where really you've given your life to Jesus, then when these come your way, please just pass them to the next person. Because it's not an expression of who you are. I pray it will be someday. But just pass it to the next person. The Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We give thanks for the bread. <laughs>